read a book a couple years back by David Kinnaman. David Kinnaman is the uh, president of the Barnard Research Group. They do all kinds of surveys, gives us uh, a good way to kind of get a handle on what people are thinking today through these different surveys. And he wrote a book called Unchristian. Anybody ever read that book before? Unchristian, interesting title um, by Dave Kinnaman. Um, I find it interesting. His research was done uh, in 2007, and what he was seeking to understand is, what does the world think of the church? What is the first thing that comes into mind when people think about the church? And actually, he broadened it to, to the world. He actually hit a specific audience, ages 16 to 29, both in the church and out of the church. He was trying to understand what comes to their mind when they think of the church. And, and now this work was done 15 years ago, and now through the lens of you know, having the luxury of hindsight, we can kind of see how some of those things have really uh, evolved even more. And I think it's worth us taking note of what is the perception of the 16 to 29-year-old when they think of the church, because that is an audience of people that the church is losing. They're not coming as much. And so we need, to, we need to understand what are they thinking? What are they seeing? Why should we care about how the world views the church? Well, we should care because it's our mission field. That's the place God has assigned for us to be lights in a dark place. It's there that we're called to, to know um, what is our culture thinking. It helps us to understand what are their preconceived ideas about us, how, when, when, when one of my fellow employees hears that I'm a Christian, what thoughts comes into their mind? What am I up against? What, are, over, what hurdles do I have to overcome so that before I even open my mouth, I can change perhaps the perception that they have of me? And so it helps us to understand what we're up against. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on the research. I'd encourage you, if you're interested, to get the book. It's David Kinnaman. The title of the book is Unchristian, and he lays out the results um, for you there. I bring it up this morning because where we're gonna be going these next couple of weeks, and specifically starting today, is kind of a reaction or a response to perhaps why are they coming up with the, with the um, designations about the church that they're coming up with? Why are they seeing, what are they seeing, or what aren't they seeing in the church that's giving them these ideas about the church? Here's some of the results of the, of the research. Again, these are ages 16 to 29. There's gonna be two numbers I'll give to you. It's gonna be those who are on the outside of the church and then those who are inside of the church. And so when asked the question, what is, what is your view of the church? You'll see that 91% of those outside the church and 80% of those inside the church came to the conclusion, the first thing on their mind is the church is anti-homosexual. Wow. That's the first thing that came to their mind. The first thing that came to their mind is what's most important to people in the church is that we deal with homosexuality. Is that really the message we want to put out there? I think that there's a reason why we're losing an opportunity to reach the homosexual community. Listen, I have no desire whatsoever to compromise the word of God. I will never do that. The scripture is clear about what, it, what is right and what is not right. The culture does not dictate what is truth one bit. But as the church, we need to have a better grasp on how do we model Christianity without trying to change the behaviors of everybody in the world around us. Because last I checked in the scriptures, that's the job of the Holy Spirit and not us. It doesn't mean we don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean that we don't respond 
according to truth. But it means we need to be careful to ensure that the Jesus that is in us would respond to that person the same way as if Jesus were there himself. Secondly, they say the church is judgmental. 87% of outsiders, 52% say, well, the problem with the church is, or the way we view the church is, they are just judgmental. The church has an opinion on everything. And see, what the problem is, we, we will judge the things we disagree with, and we are very good at being very vocal about that. Thirdly, the church is hypocritical. 85% of outsiders said the church is hypocritical. 47% of the church on the inside said that, uh, 47% of people said the church, uh, the church is hypocritical. Doing one thing and saying one thing, worshiping God on Sunday and living like the devil Monday through Saturday, right? The church, and I'm not saying these are true. Let me just back up and say, I love the church. This isn't beating up the church. This is just the perception of what's getting put out there by those who were surveyed. They say the church, 78% said the church is old fashioned. That's true. Some people are just getting on email and social media and all these other things, right? And, and so I think the church can do a good job of kind of catching up with the times in which we live, right? So 78% of those outside the church and 36% inside said the church is old fashioned. I found this to be very interesting. 75% on the outside, 50% on the inside said that the church is too involved in politics. Remember, this was, this was done in 2007, and I would venture to believe that if that was done recently, those numbers would be a whole lot higher. I think the reaction of the church in the last couple of years has demonstrated that we love our American citizenship and we're more concerned about our American citizenship and more vocal about our American citizenship than we are our heavenly citizenship. We've been so focused and fighting for our American citizenship that we have not prioritized how does our heavenly citizenship inform my American citizenship. I love my country, but I'm gonna make sure that my heavenly citizenship impacts the way I live out my American citizenship. And so just because I don't agree with people doesn't give me the opportunity and the right to hate them because my heavenly citizenship tells me I can't do that. 72% and 32% on the outside say that people in the church are out of touch with reality. Um, that's probably, um, I've, I've run into a couple of them, I won't go into details, but yeah, that's their, that's their perception, right? Here's something they found to be very sad. 70% on the outside, 20 on the inside, said that the church is insensitive to others. I don't care what your story is, this is what's true. I don't care what you've been through, I don't care about your pain, I don't care about what your experience is. Insensitive. Listen, you don't have to compromise truth to show sensitivity to people who've been wounded. I think we need to, there needs to be healthy tension on the way in which we walk those lines that we don't compromise, there's no room to compromise truth. But the way in which that truth is lived out in our lives needs to be like Jesus lived it out. 
Here I found this to be very interesting. 68% on the outside, 27% on the inside said that the church is boring. Boring, boring, boring. I don't think that's true. I hang out with a lot of fun people and I, I, I think I'm kind of fun to be around. Um, but, uh, but you know what? That's the perception, right, of, of, of some people about the church. Um, here's one, not accepting of other faiths. 64% on the outside, 39% of the inside said that they're not accepting of other faiths. And that doesn't mean that you accept other faiths, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me, right? The road to heaven is very narrow and very few are going to find it. The road to hell is very broad and many are gonna go into it. So there is no compromise. There is no universalism. There is no way, there is no other way other than Jesus Christ that people are gonna get into heaven. But that doesn't mean that I have to be not accepting of people because they have a different faith than I do. What they believe ought not to affect my day to day. What they believe shouldn't make me hate them. Shouldn't make me bully them. Shouldn't make me demean them just because they don't believe with me, believe in the same thing I believe, I believe in. And then lastly, they said 61% on the outside, 40, 44% on the inside said the church is confusing. I understand that. That makes total sense to me because the reason the church gets very confusing is because the church, unfortunately, oftentimes has, um, highlights its pet peeves. We get so focused on all of the non-essential things and all of the things that, that might be the talking points of the day that oftentimes the church pulls away from the ultimate mission of what the church is, and that's to reach people for Jesus Christ, to focus and highlight the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I love the Evangelical Free Church. That's why we're a part of the Evangelical Free Church. Because the Evangelical Free Church is a denomination that chooses to major on the majors and minor on the minors. It doesn't ignore if the fact that there are non-essential issues that people disagree over. We just choose to rally around the things that we do agree over, and that primarily the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you see, the problem is that when the church is sending so many different messages on politics and, and ethics and, and all these different things that are out there, the problem is it gets very confusing for the world because they're bombarded with the opinion coming over the pulpit and not the gospel coming over the pulpit. And the church needs to bring the God. My opinion means nothing. My opinion means nothing. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that's the power of God unto salvation. And so when that's not the priority, things become very confusing. Now I bring this research up to raise your awareness that, that the perceptions that the world has of the church, to know what they are, and to realize that the reason, <laughs> I almost said in my opinion, which absolutely I just said doesn't matter, but <laughs> The reason that there is such, uh, th there are these kinds of opinions is because the church has gotten away from the primary reason and the primary purposes of what it means to live out our faith. How do we live out our faith as Christians in the world? Living out our faith is not about changing the behavior of the world. Can I just, can I just set you free from the burden of changing people, you will never change somebody 
It is not your mission, it is not your mandate to change the belief system and the behaviors of people. Last I checked, only the Holy Spirit can do that. And he does a really good job. He does a far better job than we do. He's been doing it for centuries. The church is not called to change people's belief system or change people's behavior. We are called to present the the gospel of Jesus Christ and to present and model Jesus to the world around us, the same Jesus who in turn will transform lives just like he did ours, right? Nobody, Nobody convinced me how to live. I didn't follow anybody else's pattern for living. I embrace the lover of my soul and my love for Jesus changed the way I live my life. And you see, the church spends too much energy trying to Christianize a culture that will never get Christianized. Let's bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to do in us and through us what only he can do. Now, if that sounds like I'm being soft on sin, if anybody knows me, that is the last thing that's coming out of my mouth. But what I'm realizing is that as I look at the life of Jesus, Jesus' harshest words were for who? It's for the Pharisees. They they, they got frustrated with Jesus because it was Jesus who who would be around tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes right? He wasn't engaging or affirming their lifestyles. He was just presenting himself as the living water, right? As the solution to their greatest problems. And as a result of embracing him, their lives were changed. And I think we can learn from the master on that. We try hard to accomplish what only God can do, this is a call, the call to, to the scriptures, to, to live out our faith, to live out louder than our words. Does your life, does your faith live out louder than your words? To let our lights shine before men is our, our call. To be the salt of the earth, right? The influencers of the world. In these next few weeks, we're going to unpack a very powerful passage that that Paul wrote to the church at Rome regarding how do we live out loud in the world around us? How do we live out loud? This title of our series is, is exactly that, Live Out Loud. Because I think that our words need to follow lives that are following Jesus. Let's take a look at the passage together. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 through 21 is where we're going to pull this from. I encourage the first service. I'll encourage you as well. Would you consider reading this passage every day for these next number of weeks? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to, to, to um, shed light on the, that passage uh, in your life far better than I ever can in these next couple of weeks? Can we get so familiar with this passage of scripture? Because I love, it has so much to say about how we ought to live out loud. We're, what it does, is, and I love the way uh, the title, for, in, in many of your Bibles, it'll, it'll call it the marks of a true Christian. You see, so many times we'll read the passage like this and we'll look at that like this. Yeah, no, she doesn't do that. She doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He, he definitely doesn't do that. We're not going to do that this morning. We're not going to look at the marks of a Christian and consider how everybody else is living it out, but we're going to hold up a mirror and ask the Holy Spirit, how am I doing? 
Is my life living out loud? Am I demonstrating the marks of what a true Christian really is? We're going to spend some weeks looking at that together. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let me read it to you. Verse 9 Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek how to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, as we see these 13 verses, we see that there's a lot that's here that Paul lays out, the the marching orders for the church, if you will, right? The way in which our, our, our faith is to be demonstrated or lived out loud in the world around us. As I said before, many of your Bibles title this passage of Scripture as the marks of a true Christian, and rightly so, because how we live our lives is not what saves us. How we live our lives is not what saves us, but how we live our lives demonstrates that we have been saved. And so it's very important. And it's important that we get those in the right order. How you live your life is not what saves you, but how you live your life will demonstrate whether you have been saved or not. Paul is simply laying out the fruit that ought to be evident in the life of a maturing believer. And in these weeks ahead, we're going to take a look in the mirror. As I said before, not take a look at one another, but we're going to take a look in the mirror. And we're going to allow God's word to challenge us. My, my sincere desire is not to make anybody feel guilty or ashamed or beat up or anything like that. But I know you're here because you want to grow. You want to become more like Christ. And I can't produce that in you, but God's word... Through the, through, through the working of the Holy Spirit can do that. And so last week we celebrated how much God loves us and how much God accepts us, and that's a wonderful truth. But also the other side that we need to recognize is we're also called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and how we live our lives need to reflect the one that we say we love so dearly. Notice the first thing that Paul places before us as a mark of true Christianity for how we are to to live out loud in the world that we're called to influence. I love the way he opens up this, this section of scripture. He says, let love be 
genuine. Let love be genuine. A synonym of that would be, let love be authentic. Let it be real. Let love be sincere. Let love be genuine. He says in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. It makes a lot of sense that the first subject that Paul will deal with is, is the subject of love. One of the primary marks of a Christian, a true, true Christian, is the mark of genuine love. Genuine love. It's what motivated God to create the world. Love is what motivated God to redeem the world after the fall. You know, God could have just written everybody off and started all over again, but no, he didn't do that. He put in motion a way for us to be redeemed, brought back. It was love that motivated the Father to send the Son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It was the love of the Father that motivated that action. It was the love of the Son to come to our world, to come to our earth, and to die on a cross for us. It was the love of God, the love of the Son, that motivated the presentation of Himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. love that motivated those actions. John will highlight rightly in his epistle that love is not necessarily what God does, but it's the very essence of who God is. Love is not just what God does, it's not just a verb, but love is the very essence. He is the embodiment of love. God is love, John will write. He's the embodiment of love and everything that God does flows out of the very essence of his loving character. Nothing that flows out of God lacks love because it's the very essence of who he is. It's not just what he does, but it's who he is. And likewise, we who are created in his image we who have been redeemed in love are likewise called to move out in that very love as well. To ensure that love is the thing that motivates our actions, that motivates our responses, that motivates the way in which we live our lives, that motivates the way we live out loud. And so in order to do that, it's important to have a proper theology of love. To understand what true love is and to know how love is demonstrated, we have to have a proper theology of love. Paul says, let your love be genuine. And you see, if we want to have a proper understanding of love, we must look beyond our experiences, good, bad, and ugly. Because does everybody have a couple of each of those? Right? We have so minimized what love is in our culture. We did, we've lost the very meaning of what love is. We have, we have diminished it to a, a, an emotion that rises a little bit more than a like, right? 
I mean, if, you, you know, if you're going through Facebook or whatever, you, you, you can like something or you can love it. You don't love it. I don't even remember it, right? We have so diminished what love is in our culture. Those passing, hey man, love you, and going, go, really? Would you, do you, wouldn't you love to just kind of call somebody on and be like, do you really love me? Wouldn't that be an awkward conversation? Like, how much do you really love me? What they really think you're thinking is how much you're going to give me, right? Because that's, what is love according to the scriptures? Because we have been misinfluenced, misinformed on what love is. It is very self-centered and very self-serving how does a true Christian live out loud with genuine love? I think if we want to be able to grasp what love really is, we must go to the creator and the designer of love and see what God has to say about this subject. You know, God has much to say about what love is. How does a true Christian live out loud with genuine love? What are the characteristics of genuine love? I mean, clearly the scripture is full with, 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 with information and, and uh, that help us to understand what love is. And, and we're, gonna, we're gonna look at a bunch of those in the next couple of weeks, but, but we can't talk about the subject of love without starting with Paul's magnum opus on love. The most quoted, and not always at the right times, the most memorized, poetic, presentation of what love is. Speaking of the love chapter that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, most people, some people don't even know it's a Bible verse. I mean, it's so out there on greeting cards and billboard signs and everything else, but we can fail to miss the essence of what it really means. How do we move it from poetry, from, from something being poetic to, to living out loud? in the day, in the hour in which we're called to live it out. Come on, Pastor, you mean we're gonna actually talk about love? I mean, I'm, I'm a seasoned Christian. I've been around a long time. Can, can we get into something a little deeper than, than, than love? Can we dig a little deeper? And yet I, I submit to you that the deepest truths of Christianity aren't seen in what we contain up here, but it's what we possess in here. The deepest truths of Christianity, and I love to get into deep theology, I love to work those things through, and, but the depths of Christianity is seen not in what you know and how much you know, but how much you love, and how much we reflect. And I've discovered that the longer I am in the faith, the easier it is for me to forget those foundational truths that were so impacting to me as a young believer. So many times we can easily kind of move on in our knowledge and our understanding and forget these essentials of how love is to be lived out and lived out loud. And so we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning, the love chapter, and see how we might be able to... Um, Apply that to our lives so we can live it out loud. Look at verse one of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes and said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, 
I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I gave away everything I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Do you see the, the, the context with which Paul will highlight the importance of love? Let's not forget that 1 Corinthians 13 follows 1 Corinthians 11 and 12 where Paul is talking a lot about the spiritual gifts and, and, and all of these, you know, the things that oftentimes divide the church and, and define the church as who's more spiritual and who's not. What Paul lies out here is you can have all those spiritual gifts you want, but if you don't have love, it's nothing. It is a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You can understand all mysteries and all knowledge. It grieves my heart when I run into people who have such depths of wisdom and not, well, not, maybe not wisdom, but, but knowledge and recall. But they're arrogant and condescending towards others. They lack love. And it's like, what good does it do? What is this thing called love? How does that look? Love is patient. It's kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never ends. That sounds so nice. But as I hold the mirror up and don't ask myself the question, am I loving? But I begin to examine myself and say, am I patient? Because that's what he says, love is, love is patient. It submits to the timing of God and others. Sometimes it's a lot easier to submit to God's timing. We don't like it, but we don't have a choice, right? But are we patient with others? I've told him time and time again, if he would just listen and do things the way I've told him to do, that's why you keep making mistakes, that's why you keep failing, would you just change your ways? Love is patient. Patience recognizes that there's a lot of factors that come into play to get a person to make a change. And I don't know about you, but I have found there are times that I can get very frustrated that people aren't where I think they should be. And I need to be patient with that. Are you patient? Is that what they would say about you? Is that what they would say about you? Love is patient. Love is is kind. 
Kindness seeks the well-being and the good of others. It goes back to what I said before. We get so caught up in wanting to see people change their ways because we know that if they would just live life the way we think they should live their life, everything would go perfect for them. God loves you, but I have a, and I have a plan for your life, right? And just if you just listen to me, but love is love is kind. It seeks the well-being and the good of others. Do, do, we, do we go into our day wanting to reflect the love of God and, and allow that to be seen in the way we are intentionally kind towards other people? We live in a day where kindness is not a high priority. Timothy, Paul will write to Timothy about the end times that it's going to be violent and unkind will be one of the characteristics of the end times and clearly we are seeing that all around how much more should the church reflect the kindness of God. Knowing it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. Love does not envy. It doesn't compare. It doesn't look at what you've got and say, why don't I have that? I wish I would have had that. I wish I would, I, I wish I had that position. I wish I had that whatever. Love does not envy. It doesn't compare, but it celebrates. It celebrates what others have. It rejoices. And not envious. But you see, at its very core, the reason we, we, we demonstrate, not we, because we don't do that, somebody else, but the way other people do it, right? The reason they do that is because they think they're more deserving of it than the other person is. And they've got an overinflated view of themselves. And it manifests itself in envy, which is contrary to what love is. Love does not boast. It doesn't leave his resume everywhere he goes. It doesn't elevate herself higher than other people and at the expense of other people because that's what boasting does. Boasting is just an opportunity to say, I am better than you. And you walk away feeling good about yourself and they walk away feeling bad about themselves. And in the church, we do a really good job of really spiritualizing that, right? Hey, let me tell you where I got the victory in my life. Let me, let me tell you where I've grown. Let me tell you what I've learned. Hey, let me tell you what God has shown me. And we'll elevate and, and highlight all the things that are booming in our, house, in our life. And people walk away going, I'm not experiencing that. It doesn't boast. Love is... Love's not arrogant. It's not arrogant. Love recognizes the dignity of all people. Listen, you don't need to agree with a person's lifestyle or choices to recognize the dignity that that person has because they've been made in the image and likeness of God. Don't be afraid to demonstrate dignity towards people because you don't want to be, be perceived as in agreement with their lifestyle. You don't have to be in agreement to show dignity. 
all people made in the image of God are worthy of dignity. When we can't demonstrate dignity, we're demonstrating arrogance because that's what arrogance does. Love is, is not rude. It recognizes that there's nobody beneath me because that's the essence of what rudeness is. I could be rude to you because you deserve it. You're not as good as me or as intelligent as me or as good looking as me or as, as whatever as me. And therefore, you don't deserve to be treated with the same care as I feel like I deserve to be treated in rudeness communicates how we can see others. Here's one. That's a love does not insist on its own way. Love does not insist on its own way. We could all be guilty of that one time or another, right? More often than not. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Oftentimes we, we, we insist upon our own way because we're so prideful that we know everything there is to know about every situation. Love does not insist on its own way, but love is willing to listen and to learn. Love, uh, uh, lo- loving uh, is listening and will- willingness to listen and to learn. Listen, you can listen and learn you were right. But listen with an open hand knowing that maybe you're about to learn something. But when we take this this defiant posture that insists on its own way, we shut off the opportunity to learn and to grow and certainly to live in harmony with anybody around us. Love is not irritable. It doesn't allow past experiences to impact present relationships because that's really what's going on when someone's irritable. You ever like, you you didn't even have a conversation with somebody, they show up in the room and they're just irritable people. It's like, what's your problem, right? Why are you so irritable? We haven't, I haven't even offended you yet and you're irritable. Why? Because they're taking pain and and hurts and anger from the past and they're bringing it to the present and they're just irritable. Now, I know for a bunch of you, a whole bunch of faces just came to your mind. And if not, maybe your face came to somebody else's mind. I don't know. Irritable. Let go of the past, which is what this next characteristic is. It says love is not resentful. It's not resentful. Love doesn't hold on to offenses. Listen, man, you, we're, we're not wired to hold on to offenses. You know how I know that? Because that's what creates ulcers and all kinds of sickness when bitterness comes in. It's not how God's wired us. We're made in the image of God, God who redeems and forgives. We also ought to forgive others. Let things go. Let things go. Don't, love is not resentful. You deal with resentfulness, you won't have to worry about irritableness. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. 
right? It doesn't celebrate when someone gets what they finally deserve. Now you can think it, but please don't say it. I mean, there's some people you look and think, well, you know, it's just a matter of time. Eventually, this is, you know, they're gonna have to cash in that ticket and it's gonna, it's gonna, they're gonna have to collect. But you know what? We need to be careful to not rejoice in the consequences that people have to experience from their actions. Because we, we don't benefit from that, right? Don't rejoice in wrongdoings. Instead, rejoice in the truth. Rejoice in the truth. Love, he says, bears all things. I love that. Love embraces what it cannot control. Love embraces what it cannot change. I love that, that prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know, know the difference. There's just some things and some people and some circumstances I just can't change. And I can get embittered over those things or I can just bear them in love and trust God with it. Whether it's circumstances or people, there's gonna be some people you're just never gonna change. They will not, they will not live out your dream for their life. Can you bear with them in love? I didn't say you have to agree with them. I didn't say you have to compromise what you believe to be true. Can you bear with them in love? Are they sensing love from you? Or are they sensing distancing from you? Are they sensing condemnation from you? Are they sensing judgment from you? Because that's, that's not what we're to be putting out there. The Holy Spirit will do that. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. It gives the benefit of the doubt. Love believes the best in others. I think we could all use a healthy dose of that. Just to scrap away the negativity. Can we just believe the best in others? To not be so critical of people's motives. To not ascribe sin to everybody's actions. Believe the best. And you know what? When, when you believe the best in somebody, when God does do a work in their life, you know what? You're usually the first person they want to talk to. Are there people in your life that would say, so-and-so believes the best in me? You say, well, I'm not naive. I'm not naive either but I just choose to believe the best in others. Yeah, but you're gonna get burned, yep. But I'm gonna believe the best. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. It recognizes that hope is connected to God's sovereignty, which always brings about the best solutions. I can have hope because hope is connected to God's sovereignty and every time God is involved, it always brings about the best solution. And so, love hopes all things. Love, it endures all things. It doesn't get swayed by setbacks. Did you see the way she looked at me? Did you hear what he said? 
Don't love endures all things. Don't get swayed by setback. Love pushes through. Love has a tenacity about it that says, I'm, I want to reflect the same kind of love. How many are so thankful that God's love endured towards you? I'm so thankful that every time I said no, God didn't say, okay, I'll leave you alone. He endured. Love, Paul writes, love never ends. Love is what we will take with us when we leave this earth and experience it in a far greater capacity in a heaven that will be void of the presence of sin, which is the very thing that contaminates love. Let love be genuine. While certainly not an exhaustive list on the subject, we have before us a very practical outworking of love for the child of God. If you ever want to see the perfect example of this, just take a look at Jesus. See, you thought I was going to point to somebody, right? No. There's not one of us who's perfect in this area. But as you walk through the Gospels with Jesus, and you see the way Jesus reached lost people and broken people and sinful people and religious people and every other kind of person, you will see love personified in the person of Jesus Christ. God is love. And love took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And love walked our streets and was the very embodiment of love. And then he gave us the command. Love one another. How? As I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. I've got enough to work on right here that I don't have time to pick and point fingers at anybody else. Let love be genuine. May it be what they say. Could you imagine what the world would say about a church that loved like Jesus loves? Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. Lord, would you allow us to reflect your love to one another? to the world around us. Lord, would your words from the scriptures challenge us today so that we might grow more and more in love with you because we've been recipients of your love, but so that we might be a reflection of your love that so greatly is needed in our world around us. Lord, thank you for your word. It is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It reveals the way for us to walk. May we be found faithful to walk in accordance to your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. May we live out this mandate. Let's live it out loud.